Hello, and welcome to Talking About Tumors with Ryan and Ryan. I'm Ryan Holsek. And I'm Ryan Quinn. And today we're going to talk about BRCA positivity and its role in breast cancer, as well as a brief discussion on other related malignancies. This will be the, the last of our breast cancer discussions, and we hope that the overview has been good so far. We once again welcome all feedback. Um, any ways we can do this to be more helpful for you as we move forward into the other tumor sites that will certainly be less dense than the GI and breast cancer malignancies. So getting into BRCA, um, BRCA is about 5% of all breast cancers, and there are certain groups that are more likely to have BRCA. So these are the people that we tend to target for screening. We've talked about this gene before in the pancreatic setting. This is the breast cancer susceptibility gene. Given the fact that it makes up 5% of breast cancers, it's the most commonly encountered uh, genetic syndrome that leads to breast cancer. It is worth knowing some of the other genetic syndromes, and although we won't have a dedicated discussion around those, uh, there's certainly high yields for boards and testing. Um, so it's good to be aware of different genetic syndromes, such as Lee-Fermani, Turncoat, CDH mutation, often in, in both for the cancers that associate with these as well as the uh, gene that can be mutated. It's also practical for your clinical work to be aware of family history patterns that may raise suspicion for a syndrome that may warrant specialized screening, such as Lynch syndrome. In the case of uh, BRCA, this protein, both BRCA1 and 2, are um, DNA repair proteins. So a mutation in them, which is inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion, does lead to an accumulation of mutations, ultimately to oncogenesis. And although breast cancer is the most commonly encountered cancer with this, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer are also um, associated as well. There are some subtle differences between BRCA1 and BRCA2. So BRCA1 tends to be more associated with triple negative breast cancer, which is why we screen all patients with triple negative breast cancer for BRCA mutations. BRCA1 has about a 60 to 70% lifetime risk of breast cancer and about a 45% risk of ovarian cancer. BRCA2 has a similar risk of breast cancer, about 60 to 70%, slightly less of a risk of ovarian cancer, about 20%, and tends to be later onset. So, so for people with BRCA2, you can sometimes delay the salpingoophrectomy um, a little bit since these cancers tend to occur a little bit later can also have um, prostate cancer with BRCA2, tends to be these, you know, the patients who present in the metastatic setting, as well as pancreatic, melanoma, stomach, and gallbladder cancer. These latter cancers, uh, with the exception of prostate cancer, are still quite uncommon in the BRCA positivity. Um, pancreatic cancer being present um, with a less than 5% lifetime risk, which is still radically increased to the average patient's risk for pancreatic cancer, but certainly of less impact than something like ovarian breast cancer, where we're talking about risks, you know, 50% or greater range. Prostate cancer does not seem, at least from population studies, to associate with uh, BRCA1. The presence of the BRCA gene can affect your approach to disease, and in the context of breast cancer may alter how you approach the surgery, ongoing screening, and presence of a BRCA gene may lead to cascade testing for direct, um, direct relatives of the patient at hand. So getting a good thorough family history and trying to identify the patients most likely to have BRCA positivity is, is, should be part of your intake for any patient with newly diagnosed breast cancer or one of these other malignancies. Genetic testing does have costs, takes time, can add undue stress, and may delete, um, delay care. So selecting the appropriate patients who are most likely to be positive is important. Some healthcare systems you can only test for patients who are um, at an increased likelihood of being positive. And sometimes this can be very tricky because... Breast cancer being a very common disease, you may hear about 
multiple members in the family that have had breast cancer. And trying to take a thorough, detailed history to know whether or not someone's at high risk is both a high-yield topic as well as uh, practically important. So looking at the population data, the patients who are most likely to fit with a BRCA-positive setting is a, a patient who was diagnosed with breast cancer less than or equal to the age of 50, a male with a diagnosis of breast cancer, someone who's of direct Ashkenazi descent with a breast cancer, a patient with triple negative breast cancer, a patient with a new diagnosis of breast cancer, and an immediate family member of one of the above that we just discussed, or a total of three family members, either including or not including the patient with breast cancer, or a patient with breast cancer and a close family member with either ovarian or pancreatic cancer. I think metastatic prostate cancer would be considered warranting testing as well. If you are going forward with testing, it's important to you know, counsel the patient on the implications of if the test is positive. This is a genetic test. And most tertiary cancer centers will have a built-in genetic counselor specialty that will often help you with this, these discussions and see these patients in consultation. So once you have someone that is positive for BRCA, they're probably going to have questions about screening for other cancers as well as you know continued surveillance of their breast cancer if they did present with localized disease and are treated in the curative setting. So for these patients, you know, the recommendation is for an annual breast MRI starting at age 25, as well as an annual mammogram starting at age 30, in addition to the MRI. These patients should also be having a clinical breast exam every 6 to 12 months. They should also have an annual skin exam because of the slightly increased risk of melanoma. There are some institutions that are looking at different protocols for pancreatic screening for BRCA2 patients. However, this currently really isn't in the guidelines because there isn't much evidence for this yet. It is worth knowing that for men, you know, there is no role for mammograms, so it's really just um, clinical exam for men that are BRCA positive, as well as you definitely want to have a discussion about prostate cancer screening. There's been interest in trying to reduce the risk of pancreatic cancer using either imaging protocols, tumor markers like such as CA199. The same goes for ovarian cancer screening, looking for CA125. But to date, these uh, screening protocols have not led to increased cure or prevention of metastatic and life-threatening disease. There's also consideration of a woman who's BRCA positive, especially when who's BRCA1, to go um, to undergo a bilateral mastectomy. Although this hasn't shown improvements in overall survival, it has led to understandably reduced risks of localized breast cancer. And some women would choose the surgery, especially at the time of a new breast cancer diagnosis, um, in order to prevent needing the intensive screening protocols that would be part of ongoing care moving forward. Yeah, I've definitely had some patients who, you know, they don't want to have to do the annual MRIs and mammograms. Definitely relieve some anxiety as well as you can get better symmetry with the reconstruction if you do the bilateral prophylactic mastectomy. There still does remain a small risk of breast cancer, although greatly reduced with bilateral mastectomy, as even a, a very high-quality mastectomy will often leave some breast tissue behind and, the, and chest wall recurrences can arise. So clinical exams every 6 to 12 months would still be part of follow-up care. And as far as the risk of ovarian cancer, the recommendation right now is to do a risk-reducing risk bilateral salpingoophorectomy once you're done with your childbearing. For BRCA1, the recommendation is to have this done at age 35 to 40. For BRCA2, since the ovarian cancer tends to occur about 8 to 10 years after BRCA1, the recommendation is 40 to 45 years old. Understandably, having a discussion like this with a young person in their 30s who may or may not have completely thought about Family planning at that time can be very difficult and is part of the reason why it's worthwhile to include genetic counselors as part of your care team, as often these 
Um, as these are discussions which they're often familiar with. If you're in an area where you may not have that resource available, it's good to be aware of the numbers, the percentages, and risks so you can have a very clear, informed dis- consent discussion. And lastly, in a patient who does test positive for BRCA, it's important to consider cascade testing. So all first-degree relatives and descendants should also be should be referred to a genetic counselor um, to discuss testing for this gene as well. So beyond screening and adapting surgical management, presence of BRCA genes has become an, an interest for drug development. And we've already discussed PARP inhibitors um, in some length in our pan- metastatic pancreatic cancer discussions, as these are drugs that have shown benefit in patients who are BRCA positive. Although poor error correction and mutation accumulation associated with BRCA is high risk for oncogenesis, this also ends up being a weak spot for these tumors. It has been well shown that BRCA1 and BRCA2 positive cancers are very sensitive to drugs that affect DNA repair mechanism. One of the most commonly cited drugs that we've looked at are platinum drugs, so carboplatin, cisplatin, oxaliplatin. These bracket mutant tumors are very platinum sensitive, and that's PARP inhibitors are an oral agent. Uh, The buzzword for these are synthetic lethality. So although bracket mutants have difficulty repairing double-strand breaks, often single-strand repair mechanisms can do the rest of the work, and even though the mutations may accumulate, DNA replication still does occur. By inhibiting the protein PARP, the single-strand repair mechanism also breaks down, and this leads to DNA degradation, free radical formation, and ultimately cell apoptosis. And in the metastatic setting, there's been two phase 3 trials that I'm aware of that have looked at this, one using olaparib and one using telozoparib. So the the first study using olaparib, which was called the Olympiad trial, was published in 2017. And this study included about 300 patients with metastatic HER2-negative breast cancer with germline BRCA1 or 2 mutations. And the study looked at olaparib versus physician's choice chemotherapy, so either capecitabine, vinarelbine, and or aribulin. And the study included patients that had no more than two prior lines of chemotherapy in the metastatic setting. So they had to have um, a taxane and an anthracycline. And if they were hormone positive, they could have had um, endocrine therapy as well. They were allowed to have their anthracycline taxane in the adjuvant setting. And these patients could not be platinum resistant, which means that if they did receive a platinum um, agent prior, that they couldn't have progressed less than 12 months after completing adjuvant therapy, or they could not have progressed while actively receiving a, a, a platinum agent in the metastatic setting. These patients were randomized two to one to either a lap of 300 milligrams twice a day, or the treatment of choices Ryan had mentioned. So looking at the results, at 25 months of follow-up, the prog- the Progression-free survival was 7 months in the Olaparib group versus 4.2 months in the Physician's Choice Chemotherapy group. So far, this actually has not shown an overall survival benefit. In the final overall survival analysis, the overall survival is 19.3 months in the Olaparib group versus 17.1 months in the Physician's Choice Chemotherapy group, and this was not statistically significant. Now, looking at toxicities, Olaparib did have fewer adverse events than the chemotherapy. However, there was still a significant amount of anemia, nausea, vomiting, fatigue, headache. Um, so although it tends to be less toxic than chemotherapy, there still can be significant side effects. One of the secondary outcomes did include a quality of life analysis, and it, this did look to favor the Olaparib arm. Although I think we've... I've 
Although I think we've made this point in the past, it is worth mentioning that quality of life sometimes can be difficult to analyze between a continuous daily pill and serial chemotherapy. With chemotherapy, often you feel most ill around the few days following the treatment or one week following treatment. Whereas with a daily pill or twice a day pill in the case of Labyrinth, this leads to a continuous level of symptom burden. If you are looking closely at a quality of life analysis, it's good to know where in someone's chemotherapy cycle that the survey was administered. However, overall, it does look like this was still generally well-preferred than some of these later-line chemotherapies that can have a fair amount of toxicity burden, especially in the case of ribulin or venerabi. So getting into telozoparib, this was studied in the Imbraca trial. This study included 431 patients with metastatic breast cancer, HER2 negative, and having germline BRCA1 or 2 mutations. This study included patients that had no more than three prior regimens for metastatic disease, and again, the patients must have had a taxane and anthracycline in the past. The study looked at telzoparib versus physician's choice chemotherapy, which included capecitabine, aribulin, venerabine, and gemcitabine. And the primary outcome was progression-free survival, which was improved with the telzoparib, 8.6 months versus 5.6 months, so about a three-month progression-free survival benefit. Similar to the prior study, this study also has not yet shown an overall survival benefit. There was a numerically increased um, overall survival with a median OS of 22.3 versus 19.5 months but this did not meet statistical significance. These studies were published in 2017-2018, and as of our review here in March 2023, I've not seen an updated overall survival publication. The Telezoparib study also did include a quality of life analysis, which is an important endpoint in these trials, especially if they're not showing an overall survival benefit. It's important to know if we're making patients at least live better if we're not making them live longer. And in this study, there was a reported significant improvement in quality of life compared to the chemotherapy group. One question I have for both of these agents is, you know, we're looking at patients who have been shown to be not platinum resistant, which was specifically recommended for inclusion criteria for both of these studies. What I would be interested to know is whether or not one of these PARP inhibitors is better than a platinum agent. I'm not sure why that wasn't part of the control group. In the adjuvant setting, there has been data looking at one of these PARP inhibitors for high-risk HER2-negative breast cancer. This was studied in the Olympia trial, uh, which is published in the New England Journal of 2021. And this was comparing a year of Olaparib versus placebo after either adjuvant or new adjuvant um, therapy. This study had included both hormone positive and triple negative breast cancer patients, all had to be HER2 negative. The inclusion criteria for what was considered high risk um, was different on whether this was a triple negative disease or hormone positive disease. They also differed on whether or not patients received neoadjuvant or adjuvant therapy. So if patients were treated adjuvantly, any triple negative that was either node positive or greater than two centimeters would be part of the inclusion. If the hormone receptor was positive, it had to be at least N2 disease. So not just presence of lymph nodes, but at least four lymph nodes. And in the case of patients who received neoadjuvant therapy, anyone with residual disease that was triple negative could be included in this trial. Patients in the hormone receptor positive subgroup that had residual disease had to meet a scoring criteria called the CPS, not to be confused with cps one but CPS plus EG score of greater than three. And this takes into account... Um, pathological grading, the stage prior to chemotherapy, and the stage after chemotherapy, and comes up with a composite score. So this had to be greater than or equal to 3, which would kind of reflect either a high grade in stage 3 or high grade with um, high residual level of disease. They were randomized 1 to 1 to a lab or placebo for one year, stratified by hormone positivity, whether or not they received neoadjuvant or adjuvant therapy, 
and whether or not their adjuvant or new adjuvant therapy included a platinum agent. Primary outcome was invasive disease-free survival, a secondary outcome of overall survival. This trial ended up including primarily triple negative breast cancer. They made up 82% of the population, and a quarter of who had received platinum agents. 72% were BRCA1 positive. This was a positive trial with a three-year invasive disease-free survival of 86 versus 77%, which met statistical significance. Overall survival did seem to favor the total group with a hazard ratio of 0.68, although this was not statistically assessed. So there has been follow-up to the study published in November of 2022, looking at an average of median 3.5-year follow-up. And um, this actually did show a significant overall survival benefit. So four-year overall survival was 89.8% versus 86.4%. So about a 3.5% absolute benefit in overall survival. This benefit was seen in both the hormone receptor positive and triple negative subgroups. Notably absent from this trial was the role of adjuvant capecitabine, although given that this trial um, found this benefit in both subgroups as well as has more external validity given that it's due to larger national population, I think it would be safe to say that if you have a BRCA-positive patient that would meet criteria for this, giving a laparb for a year would be standard of care rather than capecitabine. For the hormone-positive patients, um, there is also a question of, you know, would we give adjuvant abemocyclib or adjuvant olaparib? Given that this study does have an overall survival benefit and the abemocyclib study has not yet shown an overall overall survival benefit, I think most people would probably use the um, adjuvant olaparib as well. I don't know if we specifically said it, but all hormone-positive patients had to receive adjuvant therapy as would be standard of care along with the PARP inhibitor. Okay, so bottom line, BRCA uh, makes up about 5% of all patients with breast cancer. It's important to be cognizant of patients that might have high-risk family histories and being aware of those who require screening for this disease. Good family cancer history is important in order to identify hereditary cancers because in cases of ones such as BRCA positivity, this can change both how we screen for future cancer and potential surgical options to be cancer management, and even more recently um, impact our actual management, both in the metastatic and the localized setting. So for all patients that are found to have BRCA mutations, the recommendation is for a bilateral salpingo-ophrectomy. For BRCA1, you want to do this at age 35 to 40, if possible, and for BRCA2, age 40 to 45. Obviously, you want to take into account patients' um, childbearing status and whether or not they want children, but those are the recommended ages. You can also offer prophylactic bilateral mastectomy for these patients. Um, the decision really is based on patient preference. You know, it can, it does make them not have to undergo mammograms and MRIs and all of the screening, so it can ease some anxiety. It's important to counsel these patients that they are at risk for other malignancies and pay attention to your local surroundings, whether or not there's any ongoing clinical trials to try to improve our ability to detect some of these other cancers earlier, whether that be pancreatic, prostate, or melanoma, as unfortunately the evidence for screening for these diseases has been less uh, robust. In terms of treatment, there are two PARP inhibitors that are available for patients with metastatic breast cancer that have germline BRCA mutations, um, olaparib and telozoparib. Both of these agents have shown a progression-free survival advantage in a later line setting. Neither have shown overall survival benefit, but may be considered if you want to try to reduce toxicity or transition a patient to an oral agent when, when your options get more limited to IV chemotherapies. And lastly, in the adjuvant setting, Olaparib has been shown to improve both progression-free survival and overall survival when given for um, one year um, after surgery. 
So anyone who would meet criteria for the Olympia study should be um, considered to have adjuvant elaborate for one year. Although the tolerability of these PARP inhibitors does seem to be um, better than chemotherapy, it's important also to make sure patients are aware that there are some toxicities, both the um, daily toxicities such as nausea, anemia, as well as I don't think we mentioned the rare, less than 5%, but significant risk of um, late onset MDS or AML, which can arise with these drugs as well. I think that's it. Um, Thanks for listening. Hopefully we weren't too tired. The Oscars went on much too late for us. Recommend everyone see everything everywhere all at once. I'm sure everyone's heard that before, but definitely a good movie. Yeah, I'd say our our tastes in movies overlap only briefly. When we find one that is, I I think that's usually a sign that it's a, a good movie all around. So that concludes the breast cancer series. I'm personally very sad because I like breast cancer Um, But we'll be going into the exciting topic of immunotherapy next, as well as getting into our melanoma and thoracic series. Thanks so much. Have a happy St. Patrick's Day. And good night. For more information, follow us on Twitter at TalkingTumors, or feel free to email us at TalkingAboutTumors at gmail.com. Please rate and review the podcast. We really appreciate it. And special shout out to our friend John Kim for all of his musical talents. And he is the composer of the music that you're hearing right now. Talking about tumors is not medical advice. For medical advice, please contact your own healthcare provider. Opinions stated on this podcast are by the Ryan who said it and no one else. We have no financial disclosures, and this is done purely on our own time to the sake of our enjoyment of the field of medical oncology. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.